looking at that text this morning in 1 Corinthians 16. This is the last, the last of the uh, Corinthians series. Um, next week, um, actually beginning Monday through Friday, Abby and I are going to be going away uh, without the kids for our 20th anniversary. We're going to the shore. Um, very thankful for Phil and Debbie Thompson, particularly Debbie, coming to stay at our house with our kids while we're gone. Uh, that is a tremendous blessing to us. We haven't done something like that in 10 years. Uh, we are very blessed uh, to have this opportunity. Thank you. Um, I'm going to be looking forward to Jeremy speaking next week when I return. Uh, very thankful for him and his partnership here. He's now left to go serve in Tabernacle Express, and he's going to be he and Carrie are going to watch the kids during the fireside chat, the, the nursery-age kids as well. So, very thankful he's going to be speaking next week, as I said, when he returns. And the week following, I'm going to be going back to the book of Genesis. Uh, we have eight chapters left in that book that I want to finish, and my goal is to be done by Thanksgiving. And uh, very thankful for the message of the reward of reconciliation that is communicated in that portion of Genesis. Very thankful for it. Um, I began that series with Genesis 1-1 in the beginning four and a half years ago. That just seems like where has time gone? Uh, but uh, we've been 20 months in the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, that seemed pretty long in itself. So I'm going to open it our time of reflection on the Word and hearing the Word in prayer. I'm going to be lifting up this morning uh, Brother Dan Baker. Uh, Dan Baker pre preaches and pastors at the First Baptist Church in Hawley. Uh, he incidentally has a surgery tomorrow morning, a pacemaker scheduled to be uh, installed, and so pray for, we're going to pray for him this morning. And that is, by the way, that is uh, Rebecca Rao's father. Uh, and so just Keep that in mind as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the grace that you bestow on all of us. You will hold us all fast. Those of us who have placed our faith and trust in you have every confidence that we will see you, our Redeemer, at the last day. And even as we live in this world of sin, and we do struggle, we fall, we have every confidence that we will rise up again and keep following you. Thank you, Lord, for that gift of the Holy Spirit that impresses upon our hearts your love and your affection for yourself and also for our brothers and sisters in Christ. I ask, Father, that you would hold fast, as you will, our brother, Dan Baker, as he has uh, surgery tomorrow, and if he is filling his own pulpit this morning, I pray that he would have the freedom to communicate the Word of God uh, fully and freely. And we pray the same, that I might be able to be clear um, as I present this section. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, every once in a while, I fantasize about getting sick. I think, you know, it might be nice for a change just to kind of have one of those down days, like in bed, where I just don't get out of bed. Am I the only one who thinks like that? 
Maybe that's a sign of stress. I don't know. I'm weird. I know I'm weird. But I think, uh, if you recall, I'm one of those people who also imagines what it might be like to veer into the other lane of oncoming traffic as I'm driving. I, I think about the weirdest of things. But you don't have to call the police. It's okay. I will, won't do that as we drive to uh, Jersey Shore this week. But uh, I had mentioned to you uh, the remarkable turnaround, maybe, that I had with Lyme disease this spring and summer. One of the most amazing things that occurred after being sick for a period of time was taking that first pill and instantaneously having more energy than I could remember in a while. It, it, like night and day change between being sick and feeling strength and health. Um, the inverse of that, though, sometimes when, okay, I, I know I am weird, is that going along, it's like looking for a rain day. Have anyone have a rain day desire? Like you, you just want to have like a cozy day, coffee, you know? Okay. Sometimes these changes of season are helpful. Um, we begin to appreciate actually... And as I did, my health and strength after I came out of that sickness. I know I'm kind of rambling here a little bit, but the, I hope you're getting the sense of contrast between times of sickness and times of health and how, how greatly we appreciate the health when we've had a period of sickness. And um, often, we don't always know how sick we are until... We return to health. And that's how it was with my Lyme. And I believe if you could think about it on a spiritual level, Paul is also doing the same thing here. He's actually painting a portrait of of health in describing these relationships. But you know, he is talking to a church that's pretty sick. They've had a lot of problems. They've had uh, a lot of pride and divisiveness. They've had um, uh, really reason to, to stop and ponder their spiritual condition. In fact, um, if you recall the earlier passages of the book of Corinthians, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and of the same judgments. So he's painting a picture of, of unhealth there. Chapter 3, he does it again. Verse 1, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants, infants in Christ. They were immature. They weren't healthy and strong. They weren't vibrant in their walk for the Lord. And uh, Paul prescribes something for them that will help them return to health he prescribes them the pattern of the cross, the gospel. The whole way through the book, Paul is advocating this principle that's found in chapter 1, verse 28 to 31, and it's on the wall for us. Listen carefully to what Paul says. This is the recipe for return to spiritual health for them personally, individually, and also for their congregation. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. The spiritual recipe there is to pattern oneself after the humility of Christ and the cross, to recognize that God's saving grace for us means that we all stand on that even playing field at the foot of the cross. That is the recipe, the essential, essential ingredient for the return of health to the church in Corinth. Now, I, I really appreciate Paul as he's communicating to people and communicating different relationships here in these closing verses. He's painting a little bit of a portrait of what a healthy church might look like. And in particular, a healthy church is always going to resemble the cross because the cross reveals the character of God. And so a healthy church is one that increasingly reflects God's character. So what does it look like? So in this text, we're going to look at seven, seven ways that this manifests, that, that healthy character that is in the nature of God himself. Um, last Sunday, we looked at a passage that described, described how the Corinthians were to use their money and their time in light of the resurrection. And so we found prescriptive principles out of that. This week, it's very similar. We're seeing a description, and from the description, we see the building blocks for the doctrine of the church. And so in verse 12, we see the first of these, that a healthy church is one that's increasingly reflecting God's character. It's going to have a hunger. It's going to hunger, have a hunger for the Word of God, particularly for the expository preaching of God's Word. Now, how do I see this in verse 12? Verse 12, Paul turns and comes to another concern that they had asked him about, the possibility for Apollos to return to be with them in Corinth. It says, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now, and he will come when he has an opportunity. Now, apparently, as I said, the church had asked questions, and we saw that little phrase, now concerning. Paul had addressed other questions that they had, and he's coming to this last one about the itinerary of Apollos. And it might be helpful for us to understand who Apollos was. Um, in Acts chapter 18, in Acts chapter 18, he's described this way. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Now, in that description from Acts, I see a person who is skilled in the revealing of the 
person of Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures. That is an exposing, an expository a communication of the character of who God is in Christ. Now, he was very skilled in it. And so, it actually fed their hunger for an understanding of who God is. So, I see in this implicitly that there was a, uh, there's a character there that Paul's describing that there, a healthy congregation is going to have a, a hunger for an expository preaching. I think what's helpful for us to see here is that Paul did not allow rivalry to get in the way of the Word of God for the Corinthians. Paul opened his letter by talking about different factions that had been developing in Corinth. And in the description of these uh, factions, he describes one of them as being centered around Apollos. But now here at the end of the text of the letter, he's now saying, look, I freely give you Apollos, but he wasn't available to come at this time. He didn't allow rivalry, potentially, to diminish the value of the exposing of God's word to the Corinthians. Paul was committed. Something else that's significant here that I see in this is that if the church is to increasingly reflect God's character, then we need to have a healthy appetite for the hearing of God's Word. Why? Because God's Word is the source of all health. This is where we know who God is. The Holy Spirit opens the Word so that we understand the character of God. It's critically important for us And a healthy church that wants to reflect God's character increasingly can't do it without the Word and the Holy Spirit working together. It's desperately needed. And so, as I'm working through this message, I'm also pointing out some parallels to our core values. Uh, We have as one of our core values here that we would hear God through His Word. We desperately need the Word of God to grow. And it can't be something that we give lip service to. It's something that we, in the pew, have to engage with and ask, how can I know God better? How can I understand His Word? We all need that hunger and desperation for God. Second, uh, I believe a principle that you can glean from this text regarding healthy a healthy view of the church. You can see in verses 13 to 14, Paul, in his instruction to them, is prioritizing spiritual growth. He's prioritizing spiritual growth. In these verses, Paul says so much in such pithy little short phrases. Um, in, in these verses, there is a, there's benchmarks for growth and process. You know, evaluating growth by numerical value can be a dangerous thing. Numbers do matter to the Lord. We want the world to to come to know Christ. That includes numbers, obviously. 
We want a great harvest. We desperately, though, want to have people growing inside. And that's something that's very hard to evaluate, and you can't really do it numerically. It's critically important to notice how Paul talks about growth in these two verses. Because internal growth takes place gradually over time. Um, Let's see what he says here. He says in verse... Um, Verse 13, he says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. Be watchful. Be watchful. Growth comes when the Spirit is active and we're sensitive to the activity of the, the growing agent of the Holy Spirit working within us. The Holy Spirit points out areas of our life that need to be removed. Sin, conviction of the Holy Spirit comes and unearths stuff within us. It requires an awareness that the Spirit's conviction may occur inside of our hearts. I think of the word watchful and uh, I'm reminded of the time in the Garden of Gethsemane when the disciples were encouraged to stand around Jesus while he was praying, and he, they were told to be watchful. They had to fight a temptation, didn't they? A temptation to sleep. Now, sleep in itself is not a sin. There was certainly something that Christ was going to teach them through that moment, He was, I believe, teaching them that the temptation of sleep is common to man, right? It's common to man. And any man or woman who thinks that they can withstand any temptation needs to take heed lest they will fall. And the first step towards spiritual growth is denying, being watchful, denying that You have the capacity internally to ward off temptation. That's how you stand firm. That's his word there in verse 15. Standing firm in the faith. You need to believe that you are a sinner and you cannot do this on your own. You need God's grace to intervene and help you through the temptation. You can hear as I'm teaching this the blending of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12 and verse 13. There is no temptation given you which is common to man. And so we need to be watchful about that. Watchful about that role of the Holy Spirit in our life. And through this comes perseverance. Perseverance. So you be watchful. You stand firm in the faith, not in yourself, in the faith, and act like men. That's the idea of perseverance. When you fall, what do you do? You get back up by faith and believe that Christ is not finished with you. You get back up. Do you know what the drill sergeant says at boot camp? Well, I don't know firsthand. But I'm assuming he says, hey, soldier, you get back up on your feet. You know what? Boot camp is co-ed. 
So when Paul says, be men, he's talking to the women too. So these were the days when the men were men and the women were too. Sorry. Not well played. But the reality here, Paul's saying, look, be, take courage and be strong in the Lord. Verse 13. That's taking courage in the gospel. Taking courage in the gospel means that when you fall, you realize that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You get back up on your feet by the strength of God's grace and the forgiveness you know you have. And you depend upon the Holy Spirit. That's where verse 14 comes in, where he says, let everything be done in the love of God. Let everything you be done that you do be done in love. Love is the very character of the Holy Spirit. So this is what spiritual growth looks like. And as a congregation, we have a core value that talks about growing spiritual leaders. We're not looking for managers of programs. We're looking for people who will be spiritually growing and can model that for other people. That's the goal of the gospel and ought to be the goal of our congregation. So in our normal life, doing life, we need husbands who will lead their wives sacrificially, growing in the area of loving sacrificially. We need women who are submissing to their husbands and following their godly leadership. We need parents who are carefully caring for the well-being of their children. These are things that are critically important for the growth of families and congregations. But all of this takes place in those little moments of being watchful, that when sin raises its head, the temptation to lose it, to, to do whatever, to fall into the temptations of the eyes, the temptations of the mind, the temptations of the heart. We have to, in those moments, realize that there is no temptation which has taken you, but which is common to man. And that's where we grow in the mundane moments of life. Well, there's a lot there. I got to keep going. There's a third characteristic that I see in this text of what a healthy church will look like. And that is in verse 15, recognizing the Spirit's role in conversion. Um, in verse 15, Paul says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that this household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And in this text, Paul had talked about Apollos before. And in the beginning of his letter, he also referenced Stephanus as well. And now he's ending the letter again with Stephanus. Who is Stephanus? Well, judging by how he talks about Stephanus here in this text, it would seem that he was potentially, I believe, an elder in the church. He was modeling a servant leadership, and I'm going to talk about that more in a moment, but it's important for us to note right here, the descriptive of being the first convert in Achaia. 
Achaia was the region of Greece. It's, you can go there. It's the southernmost tip that sticks out into the Mediterranean. And you, you have to cross a little narrow neck of land to get to it. And the first city that you enter when you cross from Athens over this little bridgeway is the city of Corinth. And Paul references him as being the first fruits, literally, of Achaia. That word, first fruit, is critical for understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in conversion. Um, some translations will call it the first convert, but the first fruits, I think the King James does really nicely in its translation here, calls it the first fruits. Do you remember the discussion of the resurrection? And in the resurrection, Jesus was called the first fruits. And after him, there was the promise of many more. Remember, Christ was also described as the life giver, the one who gives the life giving spirit. And Christ, and God is the one who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ, the gift if you will, of the Holy Spirit, life itself. I believe that in this text, Paul is communicating that this was the first person who became born again by the Holy Spirit. Important for us to understand that the role of the Holy Spirit in conversion is essential. It's essential. The Holy Spirit is the one who convinces us of our sin, and much more than that, he replaces our heart. He quickens our thinking, and life is imparted to our souls. We're not passive actors only. As this well of affection for God develops, there is a response from us that communicates a trust and acceptance of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And so when we turn from our sin and embrace the Savior, this is all action of the Holy Spirit, and we're following through with that. In Ephesians 2.8, Paul had said, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. And I think it's helpful for us to realize that a church that misunderstands this basic spiritual truth will be an unhealthy, devilish, divided church. And why would I say that? Because to point yourself as the first cause of conversion is to puff yourself up with pride. Paul laid this out at the very beginning of the book. He communicated that God had an active role in calling people to Christ. And knowing that the Holy Spirit has a definitive role in conversion is essential for the health of any congregation. And so in this, there is a value here that I believe that we can see that we call all people to Christ. We let the Holy Spirit do the work in their hearts, but we call all people to Christ. That is the message that we give here at the tabernacle. Number four, number four, we find this in verse 16. In verse 16, we need to value the leadership that God provides. 
in verse 16, he's still talking about Stephanus. And he says, be subject to those, to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. That's a really unique way of describing the church's responsibility to Stephanus. And he's singled out here as a a person of servant leadership. He's counted alongside Paul as a fellow worker, a laborer. And Paul says this is the kind of leader who's worthy of submitting to. Now, I know the word submission is a very, very dirty word. Because it almost always implies this concept of, like, doormat. That's not what Paul's referring to here. He's talking about the submissive nature that's willing to receive from the hand of a servant of the Lord instruction. It's the way of obtaining blessing. Hebrews 13, 17 says this in closing. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do it with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I know that not every leader is worth submitting to. However, what Paul is communicating here is that those who are worthy of submitting to, that we ought to submit to them. It's a significant part of valuing, and a healthy relationship in a congregation is critically important. How do we do this? How do we, how do we unite and value? Well, we do that by becoming and being a meaningful member. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in a later point. But the importance of valuing is so critical for us. Let's look at the next, number five. There is another character quality here that I see in this text. As that is of the practice, practicing the grace of hospitality. Verse 17 to 18, um, Paul says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours and give recognition to such people. Stephanus, we've met already. The other two guys, uh, we haven't met, but they likely were bearing a list of questions to Paul. And bringing these questions to Paul, Paul was pleasantly refreshed. They had an outgoing, welcoming spirit about them. And I see in this a picture of true hospitality. You know, I think the word hospitality has been hijacked. It has nothing to do with a perfect presentation of food layout. That that has not, I mean, that could be a means, but that's not the end of it all. What Paul is communicating is that he was refreshed, his heart was filled with joy because there was a welcomingness within that relationship. And what I see here is that even a cup of water in Christ's name can be a source of welcomeness, a source of joy in giving that to other people. 
I think it's important for us to realize that we all have areas in which we can bless one another. Just as these men, even a smile, being welcoming. And this actually fits very well with one of our core values, is that we, are to, we love others with Jesus' grace. If we have been given the grace of Jesus Christ, then we ought to welcome all people. And that attitude and spirit will be a bumper crop of health in a congregation. And so these are all, I believe, glimpses into pictures, and you see, you see God's character revealed in these. Um, verses 19 to 20, number 6. There is the belonging to a local church meaningfully. In verses 19 to 20, you may be scratching your head and say, well, pastor, how did you get that out of that? But in verse 19, it says, the churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. And all the brothers send you greeting and to greet one another with a holy kiss. In this text, Paul is referring to very specific congregations at specific locations. Well, he talks generally, yes, about the churches that are Asia, because that's the region that he's writing from. He's, he's referring to the specific church that would be in Ephesus. He's thinking of the specific church that is in Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those are the seven churches in the book of Revelation all in his own region, the region of Asia where he's writing from, which is modern-day Turkey. But he's writing specifically and giving greetings from those churches and the members that are connected to those churches. Church membership is not prescriptive in the text of the Scriptures. It's rather descriptive. You see it described. But it's appropriate for us to build doctrinal points from the descriptions that we see in the text. For example, the church has kept a list of widows that they would support in 1 Timothy chapter 5. In fact, uh, in Acts chapter 6, it was the full number of the disciples who voted on deacons. There was also a specific number of people who were added to the church at Pentecost. And as long as the church has existed, there has always been a record kept of who was and who was not a member. There is a legitimacy to doing church membership, which is derived from the descriptive sections of the Bible. But probably one of the most important reasons for church membership and belonging meaningfully to a local congregation that's more than merely attending is that without a meaningful membership, you cannot truly take responsibility for one another and allowing others to be responsible for you. And so we desperately need to consider the fact that we can only really truly bless each other with God's gifts as we commit ourselves to that responsibility. 
there's another aspect to membership which we will hit in the last point. It's critically important. Because in verse 21 to 22, Paul kind of looks back over his letter and references the need to courageously practice church discipline. In verse 21 to 22, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Clearly, he had a secretary copying down everything that he had said to this point. And he's wanting to validate the authenticity of this letter, and so he puts his own mark on it. And he says, write, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Catch this in verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. What Paul is saying there is that if anyone, that is a person who professes to have a love for Christ, but doesn't have a love for Christ, they are to be anathemized. They're to be taken and placed outside the camp and clearly communicated that they do not belong to the Lord. In fact, it's a difficult thing. Notice what Paul says after that. He says, let them be accursed. That's literally anathema. He says, our Lord, come. That's literally maranatha. He quickly prays after stating what he just said. And I can empathize with Paul's prayer, which says, our Lord, come. Because that's not something that's pleasant to do. It's not desirable. Can't that wait until Christ comes? Can't we just wait until, like, the angels come and sort out those who are, you know, his and those who are the goats? No. We have the responsibility as believers to do the weeding before the master comes. We do the inviting of people to come to the cross. But when a person defiantly does not communicate by their actions the love of God that they profess, they have to be removed from among you. In fact, that's what Paul was getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 2. There was a person who was immoral. They were unrepentant. They said that they loved God, but they were sleeping with their in-law. It was something that not even the, the pagans did. And that person was to be removed from among them and from among their number. And so church discipline doesn't happen if there's not a meaningful membership. Church discipline occurs through a process, and of course there's many stages of appeal before you would ever get to that point. But the reality is, it is a necessary part of the life of the church until the Lord comes. Maranatha. Even so, Lord, come. And this is the essence. As I look at this, I see that a church that practices these things increasingly reflects, increasingly reflects God's character. And so... All of this, all of this is our responsibility until the Lord comes. So what do we do? 
We sow seeds of godly action. Positively, we sow seeds of godly action. And we believe that our church and all churches can be increasingly reflecting God's character. And so as we do this, we don't depend upon our own strength to carry it out. What we do is we depend upon the Lord. And so we pray in all things to God. And this is how he concludes the letter, and this is how I will conclude my message. In verse 23 and 24, he says that we are to pray. Essentially, he's actually praying. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And in that, there's a prayer, a commitment of one another through the power of the cross through the power of the gospel. And we are also to pray for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with us all. And we're to pray that God's love would be in us and through us. Sickness and health. Sometimes periods of sickness cause us to give thanks for those times of health. Sometimes we forget how good we have had things unless we have periods of sickness. Just like the story of the judges. It causes us to fall upon our knees and call out to the Lord for his grace and his mercy and his love. Let's close this service with that prayer.